0: to fintech insider insights the money 2020 special we had the good fortune of being in copenhagen and bumping into just about everybody we could get our hands on and today we're going to take you through some of the highlights of the people we met whilst out there in copenhagen we've got interviews with the likes of bbva's derek white uh, bianca lopez from bioconnect as well as holland fintech visa mambu temos and much much more Uh, but without further ado let's jump into the first interview with derek white from bbva Great, so I'm here with Derek White. Derek from BBVA, thanks for being on Fintech Insider. Thanks, Simon, great to see you again. Great to see you. Uh, My old friend and boss, of course, (laughs) uh, in in my Barclays days. Uh, So how are you keeping, man, how you been? Loving it.
1: Spain is wonderful, Madrid is wonderful, BBVA is an incredible company, and to be in a position in financial services right now, it's incredibly exciting to see the convergence, the blurring of lines between industries the convergence of fintech with large tech and large banking, um, as well as the very human side of helping people solve their problems, uh, which I think is one of the biggest things that's missing in the overall uh, story in banking and financial services today, is is,
0: is so much about helping people solve their problems. It's so true. And, and with your role being like really obsessed with customer experience and thinking about what does the outcome look like for the customer, can you give me some examples of where you've been able to solve some of those problems that weren't solved before? Absolutely. Uh, I'll give you a consumer example. We can talk about
1: uh, small, medium enterprises, corporate banking as well, but um, one, of the, one of the things that we found is that customers don't just want help with traditional financial products they're expecting and opening doors for banks, traditional banks and organizations, to move upstream in the customer relationship. It goes back to that blurring of lines relationship that we see between the retailers, the marketplaces, and others. And what we're finding, for example, BBVA Valora in Spain. We were able to take open market data through open APIs, look at what customers really want to know. They don't want a mortgage, right? And others have tried this in the past, But what we did was access open data in the marketplace, really provide the customer answers to problems that they wanted earlier and further upstream by saying, what's my property actually worth today? What could I really afford? What are other people paying for those properties in the marketplace? What's the value of the property I'm looking for and the delta between what I can actually afford help them solve that problem, and
0: then provide the financial product to them at the end. So it's the difference between trying to push financial product right up front and is the only thing you do versus thinking about the entirety of like a human journey like what is my need uh, our co-founder Jason often talks about open banking isn't about banking and it's not about technology it's about these end-to-end journeys and really thinking through right so where does somebody start thinking about buying a house what are the problems they're trying to solve absolutely I think that's you, you know so much of the last couple of years we've talked
1: about the world shifting from closed systems to open systems, closed marketplaces, closed intellectual property, to open property, open marketplaces, open networks, right? So much of what you've done looking at the blockchain is, the great, is one of the greatest examples of that. And we see that absolutely manifesting in the customer relationship as well, right? Customers have historically had almost one-to-one relationships with any institution or organization. And that ties through to their banking relationship. But what we're finding as well is that customers are wanting more of that open relationship with their institution. They want to trust someone to help them with their money. They're willing to open up more of their life, to share their data, to share their experiences, and are just waiting for someone to help them with things other than financial services and
0: products. And I think there's something nice about the humility and the option to give to a customer that, hey, um, you can have your data from us somewhere else and you can take the data from somewhere else and give it to us. And that two-way street is really nice. Um, that it's not just, you have to use our products in our channels all the time, but actually when you open that up, it becomes a lot clearer. Absolutely, and that's,
1: that's exactly why we've created Open Platform. Our Open Platform live first in Spain. We've got some uh, trials in Turkey and in the United States as well. But we have eight APIs that we've opened up that are allowing customers to not just access anonymized data so that companies can actually, you know, as we move from the consumer into the company side of things, we're allowing companies to actually access data, the very rich market level data and micro market data to help them target customers in a way that we're able to package up where customers are spending, what they're doing, and help businesses help their customers in other ways. In in additionally, we want to be very neutral on the products that we offer to our customers. So we're opening up our products and services to provide our customers the best solutions. And what's beautiful about it is that it requires us to up our game. Because we've got to make sure that we're providing our customers the best products and services available out there, just like our mobile banking application has been rated the best in Europe. But that's a mobile banking application. What we're also seeing is in our open banking platform, our customers are developers. And a bank looking and understanding that the developer is the customer and that the developer can create products and solutions that we haven't even dreamed of, we're very comfortable with that. And,
0: I and we love that. I love that idea of the developer is the customer or the business to developer business model. Like I don't know that many people I've spoken to in the industry have really gotten how important the creators of tomorrow are going to be because yeah. they're developers, they're sitting in a garage somewhere and they could build the next Facebook, the next Uber, the next big thing. And do they love your APIs? Do they really experience it? And for that to challenge the organization is something that you guys now find yourselves on the front line of. What? have you found have been the challenges to that? And how do you think about overcoming them like, to really help developers on that journey? Well, the great thing is that everybody, everybody knows what an
1: API is now. Or at least they know those three letters that are an API. The question is, do they understand a one-legged, two-legged, three-legged API? And what's the business model around a two-legged versus a three-legged API? And how do you create solutions that can actually help customers in that way? That's an education in the organization. It's also an education in the marketplace as to what services we are going to expose in a way that allows businesses or developers to create businesses and extensions of financial services into and connecting into these blurred lines of Other industries. Very cool. So, where can people find out more about the Open Platform? Openplatform.com. We've got uh, a website today that customers can be able to come and visit bbva.com and learn about uh, Open Platform, the eight APIs that are currently available in uh, in Spain, as well as those that will be coming in the United States. Fantastic, Derek
0: White. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thanks, Simon. Good to see you. All right.
0: That was Derek White. Thank you very much, Derek. High energy as always. Next up, Jason speaks to Andrew and Tack from JCB.
2: So hey guys, here we are with Andrew and Tack from JCB. I take it you don't make industrial machinery?
3: We don't and I'm glad we can clear that up on day one. Though we did see a crane early yesterday and we thought maybe if we could brand that, it would be a perfect opportunity. So Uh we're definitely not the crane company. So thanks for clearing that up, Jason. (laughs) So
2: tell me what JCB do.
3: Uh, So, we are a payment scheme. There are many others. Uh, We've been around for a number of years. We started off in Japan a long time ago. We're a global organisation now, but uh, our roots were firmly fixed in Asia and Japan, but we've expanded. Uh, And Tack's role is to really develop the technology and the innovation that helps us break into areas where we haven't been to before. Mm.
2: So, Tack, what makes your payment scheme different?
4: I think, you know, the, one of the, the characteristics we have is a kind of uniqueness, uh, maybe because of, you know, we're from Japan or Asian countries, which is different from other payment brands. So we have some unique, but we can provide some unique values, okay. like providing this, some specific personal concierge services to our cardholders. In terms of technology, it's different, but we also open and flexible in terms of providing the technology to our stakeholders. So that's, I think, that's something we can specifically yeah. know.
2: So I guess to be specific, if I was a, a potential customer, how would you know that I'm the right fit for you and you're the right fit for me? What am I selling or what am I, where am I taking payments?
3: So I guess if you're a merchant, uh, one thing you should be aware of is that, you know, we have over 100 million, 106 million card members. So there's an opportunity for you to engage with those 106 million uh, members. We have over 30 odd million merchants that accept today. So as a merchant, you definitely want to be part of the JCB family. Uh, And it's a growing base. We're seeing our base grow in the Middle East, in Russia and in Europe, where we're really looking at this conference as our rebirth. So I'm I'm tagging it as JCB 2.0. So this is, JCB's here, we're ready to roll, we're ready to rock, and we're looking for new opportunities. So are you the right fit? If you're a merchant, absolutely because we know our cardholders and members will travel, they spend well whilst they travel, and they're very loyal. We have card members who've been with us 30, 40 years, and uh, we're hoping to increase that base as well.
2: So I guess it's, it must be quite hard with the oligopoly of Visa, MasterCard. You know, is there space for, a, for a, 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 not a new scheme, but an, a, a scheme that's coming into this part of the market?
3: My view is that the other schemes all do great things and uh, we admire each other but our war is on cash what we're really trying to do is look at the 70 percent of the world that still pays in cash and how can we how can we get around that how can we give card members merchants safe and secure way to pay especially when they travel you know the days of travelers checks and checks are long gone so we're giving people uh, just a much safer way to pay so there's space but it's the way we do things not just what we do as tax said we're unique in many ways.
2: So, so tell me how you're unique. How well, is it that well, you do one things? One of the
3: great things that we have is our, is our live concierge service. So, you know, if you arrive in one of our countries, let's say France, we have a group of people in an office ready to serve you as a card member. We'll do everything from book a hotel, give you a massage with a massage chair, help you find the restaurant that you need. And often these, these plazas were set up for language issues as well, as people travel from some parts of the world and perhaps didn't feel comfortable. But as we move into the digital age, or we have moved into the digital age, we're finding ways where we can make that not just a face-to-face experience, but with tax help, well, will make it so it's mobile. When you land, there'll be some information about, you know, offers for card members, where you can spend, and the, the things that we can do for you as a card member that maybe the other schemes can't do.
2: Mm, that, that sort of human touch in a digital yeah. world is something that comes a- across quite a lot I think in some of the, the yeah. talks. Uh, I guess that uh, who issues JCB cards?
4: I think you know the many banks or card company in Japan issue card JCB cards today and also we expect expand, having expanding the, you know, the uh, card issuing outside Japan. so China, Taiwan, Korea and all, most of the Southeast Asian, Major you know, uh, banks already issuing you know, started issuing JCB cards. So that's that's the kind of our partners today.
3: Right. Uh, and one of our latest ventures is in Russia. So Russia. in Russia, we've we've issued about three, four hundred thousand cards already uh, in partnership with uh, local brands there, and we're we'll look to expand that as well. Similarly in the Middle East, and here in Europe, we have some issuing, but our ambition is to to change that strategy and uh, work on issuing within Europe as well.
2: We've just been talking to the CEO of uh, PayU uh, that does, you know, uh, that connects him with something like 260 different payment schemes and uh, mechanisms. It seems like quite a, a growing market and quite a market where people in different territories are starting to now expand into other territories. Do you see 260 schemes surviving or how, When does the future look, what does the future look like?
3: Jason, it's a great question and I look at, if you look around the hall today, there are names that many of us have never heard of. Will they be here next year? Quite possibly, but I think what is exciting is that barriers to entry have been removed. So we're seeing startups, we're seeing FinTech companies that are coming up with great innovative ideas. They need to monetize those. They need some help and experience from the established brands. And we're great to work with in that sense. And in fact, just this week we've signed two new agreements, one with iSigners, one with Moneynetting. And these are people, PSPs, that we probably wouldn't have spoken to a few years ago but we're moving in that direction because they get us to market quicker so it's a, it's a great win-win-win for the card members for us and for the other psps as well so yeah i think there is space but it's finding the right partner that wants to work with you and has similar attributes as well well tack
2: andrew thanks for joining
3: us. all right great great thanks jason
0: Thank you very much, Jason. Next up, we have Bill Gajada, the Senior Vice President of Innovation and Strategic Partnerships
5: at Visa.
2: So I'm here with Bill Guider from Visa.
5: You've got some exciting news. We do. So uh, our Head of Innovation and and Partnerships from San Francisco, Jim McCarthy, is going to be on stage in just a few minutes. And he's going to announce that we're going to be an investor and a partner with Klarna, um, one of the foremost uh, payment platforms here in the Nordics, but also, you know, throughout Europe.
2: That's amazing. I mean, Klarna is one of those uh, companies, in fact, we were talking about it earlier, where they're actually spreading from payments into point of sale lending and a banking license too. A banking
5: license just last
2: week. Sure, exactly. so so what's Visa's interest or why, why are Klarna the perfect partner?
5: Yeah, they're a great partner. So we started a partner program four years ago because we realized that increasingly there were more non-banks that were starting to drive the future of commerce. Okay. And we started the program in the United States. You can imagine partnerships like Amazon and Google, Facebook, Apple, Samsung. And when, when we finished acquiring Europe a year ago, we expanded that program to this region. And okay. we looked at a number of companies that were becoming those platforms uh-huh. that were driving the future of commerce. And in Europe, as I said, you know, the, well, I think the preeminent one is, is Klarna. And if you take a look at what you just said, the range of products mm. continue to expand, the range of markets continue mm. to expand, you know, the, that that unique customer proposition that they have, the equity into the brand that they've built. You know, we think that there's a lot of value we can bring to each other, you know, mm. through this combination. So we're delighted. Well,
2: that's uh, like, great news. Yeah. Uh, what other areas are you looking at, like beyond Klarna? Is yeah. this uh, will you be making more investments and more acquisitions?
5: Yeah, no question. I mean, and of course, you know, uh, Europe is such a, a unique payment space. There's so much going on yeah. here. You know, so what do you think about companies like Wirecard or Adyen or, 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 or D-Klarna, there's a lot of really interesting companies um, in, in Europe that are creating these new commerce platforms, new customer experiences, uh, some large ones, like I said. But we also, you know, look at a lot of small fintechs mm-hmm. in centers like uh, Berlin or London or Tel Aviv. Mm. And so we'll continue to make investments, big and small, uh, we'll certainly continue to partner with companies, you know, to build out the ecosystem and, and, and Europe's a great, a great area.
2: It seems like uh, card schemes have come under increasing pressure, I guess, as, you know, new technologies come in and everyone's now got a, an iPhone that can accept a card or a variety of different payments. You know, is this part of a uh, reinventing
5: card schemes? In some ways, it's reinvention. I think in, in the way we look at it is, you know, we'll retain our our core role is the network that empowers the ecosystem. You know, we're business to business, we're, we're not direct to consumer, sure. that's your bank or it's Klarna. Sure. Um, and we'll continue to, to make that network relevant around all these new technologies, all these devices, it's not just plastic only, mm. it, is a, it is a phone, it's putting a credential in your car, it's a wearable device, mm. it's, it's a, a, a home electronics that can talk to each other, and so we need to kind of keep our core role, which is that network in the middle, mm. but really expand the edge of our network to accommodate everything that's happening around us.
2: Mm. There seem to be so many end-to-end journeys where commerce or some kind of payment is part.
5: Right. Absolutely right. And even things like, you know, the Internet of Things, when machines start to talk to each other, they're not always going to want to transact. But at some point, many of them will want to transact. So we're also thinking around how do we enable machines, you know, to conduct and initiate payments without any human interaction, Mm. right? And so you're right. I think that as we look at, at a lot of everyday experiences Commerce is a piece of it, mm. um, and and in those cases, you almost want commerce to be in the background because people love to shop, but you know they hate to pay. Mm. And so we've got to we've got to take that experience and just enable commerce, enable those really rich consumer experiences like Klarna does, and make payments seamless and put it in the background.
2: Yes, it's very much that you jump into an Uber, you leave an Uber. Yeah. Was there a payment journey? Right. There was.
5: There was. But, but that's what, not what you're focused on. You're focused on, I got to know who the driver was. I saw a map of where I'm going. I know how long mm. it's going to take to get there. I get an instant receipt at the end of it in case I have to expense it. That's the journey. Payment happens somewhere in there and we enabled it. That's mm-hmm. great.
2: So, um, so within these end-to-end journeys, these moments, or indeed innovating any of these areas, how do you do it in a regulated you know environment where there are such high value high volume transactions going through you've got right. a business to support you know millions of customers and you're innovating right how does that work
5: so you know we've, we've built this innovation partnerships group as a separate group you know, that operate innovation centers around the world. We have different ways of operating. We we take risks because we're talking about proof of concepts or pilots, you know, they're not fully commercial. And so we've been given, I think, leeway by the company to lean into some of these new technologies to to fail fast, Mm -hmm. you know, to look at startups that may not scale ever, but we're going to learn something really important from Mm -hmm. them. And so, you know, I think Visa works at a couple speeds, you know, that speed that has to be reliable all the time, you know, many thousands of transactions a second that people have come to rely on. And, and a different speed where we're leaning into some technologies, taking some more risks to learn about them, and over time, get them to scale. So
2: what excites you most in the market at the moment? Where do you think the, uh, the key points will be?
5: Yeah, I think push payments. So person-to-person payments, mm. I think, are interesting. Um, I think being able to turn a mobile to the phone, in, to your point, into an acceptance device. So we split lunch, and you just have to tap my phone, mm. and I've got 10, you know, 10 euros on my, on my, on my card. Those personal payments, social payments, I think are interesting. What's happening now, Internet of Things, it's early now with wearables. Mm. But we're talking to a number of car manufacturers. I think that's going to be a use case that's going to expand. What's happening with biometrics? Mm. You know, it's, we, I think all of us like the fact that we can authenticate our thumb or our finger on a payment because we feel more secure about that phone mm. making a payment. But I think where biometrics is going is it all happens in the background. Mm. You know, we're being authenticated maybe several times a second. Sure. So by the time we push the pay button, everyone's pretty sure it's us. And so I think biometrics is another area
2: that we like. So do you think across the Internet of Things, across biometrics, device, car, there'll be a, a sort of standardized API set?
5: Uh, there absolutely has to be. For anything to get to scale, there's got to be a, rules of the road, standards, certification. So if a car implements a Visa uh, token or, or a Visa credential a certain way, they need to know that Visa's gonna make that transaction work, that that it's certified, that it's not a dead end in terms of the technology they invest in. And so a big part of innovation for us are building these requirements, specifications, certifications once we've learned enough Mm. to say if you do it this way, We'll certify it, that's a good transaction. So I think standards still play a very big role.
2: So, where are we in that cycle at the moment? Because quite often we see, you know, actually, it's not a great time to implement standards when you don't know much about it. Right. You have to get out, you
5: experiment. Exactly right. So, as an example, we started Visa Ready with NFC devices because there weren't enough manufacturers or weren't enough terminals. And we developed Visa Ready so that every manufacturer didn't have to get certified 600 times by every sure. bank or, right? So, we started with that now mobile point of sale, Square and iZettle, et cetera. We developed a Visa-Ready program with that and we've certified, I think, 200 mobile point of sale devices. Wow. We're now developing a biometrics program, um, app certification, um, IoT certification. So I think you're going to see several new Visa-Ready programs being launched around those areas in the next year or two. What do you think are the big risks in, in, in the innovation? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've got to be working as hard on security and and the next customer journey at the same time, mm. because I think people want richer, more seamless customer journeys, but I don't think they want it at the expense of security. And so sure. we have to continue to kind of to work both angles as Visa. But I think the biggest thing you know that keeps me up at night is we just can't get complacent. Yeah, right. We we don't know when the next technology disruption is coming, um, and so we've just got to continue to invest in innovation and look across that next hill on, and see what's coming.
2: Well, Bill, that sounds amazing. Thank you for spending a few minutes with us.
5: No, thank you. Cheers.
0: Next up, I spoke to Bianca Lopez, who is the Vice President of Business Development and Strategic Marketing at BioConnect. Great. So we're here at Money 2020, and I'm joined by Bianca Lopez from BioConnect. Thank you so much for being with us.
6: Thanks for having
0: me. Uh, been a time friend of the show, uh, first time on the show. We feel like... The beautiful thing has finally happened, you've you've managed to join us. Uh, So tell us about you. Tell us about BioConnect. Tell us what you
6: do. Okay. Um, So I'm one of the owners and I run product and marketing and business development for BioConnect. i got a fancy new title, Chief Identity Officer, which apparently I'm not allowed to like make it into CIO because otherwise you're going to think I'm- People
0: are going to confuse it with Innovation Officer. Or
6: Information Officer. Yeah. There's some in banks. So yeah. Bioconnect, uh, we've been around for eight years. We, I like to say in the most simplistic form that we build technology that builds the last mile between human and all this cool stuff that other people are building
7: right. okay.
6: by using biometrics.
0: Cool, so talk me through a use case. How does somebody come across Bioconnect? Who's the customer? What are they using it for?
6: Totally, so we expand in a wide variety of use cases. So we really started the company by allowing you to get rid of these fobs and cards and keys that we all use to get into large buildings and that was really born out of like security so a need for someone to know did simon walk into that building because if that building is a data center maybe it really matters who's walking in and who's walking out and instead of you using what we call your suspect identity why don't you use yourself so we use biometrics in order to allow the systems to know is simon walking in simon walking out you see your technology in like airports and those kind of things And what we've progressed, where I'm very fortunate as my role, is to bring us into financial services. So a simple way of thinking about it is you know, you can use your voice. And we've heard a lot about, finally, some of the keynotes in Money 2020 talking about voice as a way of authentication. Why would you use a password to log in? Why do you need a credential that's actually not you? So a way that BioConnect can be used is inside of a bank's app, as an example.
0: really interesting because we did some uh, fintech insider news a couple weeks ago where somebody was talking about the fact that it's possible to hack certain types of biometrics if you're really 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 clever and people never compare it to what was there before they only say uh it's
6: oh they're like oh you can totally hack into the biometric but no one's talking about the fact that like three billion credentials were compromised last year
0: yeah three billion credentials were compromised last year that's one heck of a stat
6: and like there is a study done in the U.S. that 10 million, uh, 10 million people, 10 million users have diverse, like online credentials, and how many common passwords. So out of the 10 million, 80% of those people were using the 10 same combinations of what a password is. So it's password backwards, one two three four five six seven, like those kind of things, and people never compare to those hacks because that's just not newsworthy, I guess. Yeah, it's well, been if
0: if there's really terrible things happening with that all the time, then it's not new that that's happening. But there's a reporter that finds a way to hack something that's actually quite hard to hack, and then that makes news. And people get this uh, distorted sense of what's secure and what's not secure, and they don't trust the new technology. So how do you help people trust that you're using their biometrics? Does that mean you're like uh, spying on them or...?
6: Not at all. So let's talk about that because that's like the main reason why people, I think, think that you're storing their face, their finger, or listening into their voice, or capturing all this stuff, it's actually because the industry started in, after, majority after 9-11, the US government poured a ton of money into the market and said, I need to figure it out, who's boarding my planes and turning them into killing machines. So I'm going to actually store people's faces. The difference is today's technology, all the market leaders you see today, they're not storing your face, they're storing a template. So they're storing a mathematical representation of things that make you who you are, and right. that can be encrypted, just as secure as a token.
0: So it's, it's not your actual face, it's a representation of it, it's not it's your mathema- fingerprint.
6: Correct, it's a mathematical representation of that. So, so unless if I saw you can that mathematical
0: map, representation, I wouldn't be able to figure out that it's you, would I?
6: So that is the biggest thing, it's liveness, because biometrics is the last mile to the human. And unless I'm here, you shouldn't be able to represent me again. So unless you find that token, which is why it's so important then you talk about liveness detection or spoofing capability. If you just have something that looks like you and you can hack into that, then you can represent Simon again.
0: So we've seen a number of examples where people are able to take a photo of somebody and log in using their face, using the photograph. So this is what you mean by liveness. That's one
6: of the basic myths of biometrics is where is the liveness and the human interacting with it?
0: So how do you you start to overcome that? And how do you give people comfort that uh, it is live and you are constantly kind of moving forward on the, making sure that that person is really there?
6: So from a market perspective education, it's a massive problem that we all have in the industry. It's like, because it's such a has been such a private industry, it started in governments, Like people don't talk about it. So when they don't know, it's like cryptocurrency or blockchain, when they don't know, they're like, oh, this creepy thing over here, I don't really understand. So I think a lot of the times that we spend at BioConnect is trying to educate the market and go, here's the good, here's the bad, here's the, here's the truth, shortfalls, every technology will have shortfalls. So I think it's educating that. And, and then it's just really good cryptography. What is the tokenization system that you're using? What is the encryption that you're using? So when a biometric is an example stored on the server, could you be using homomorphic encryption in order to move that template around without decrypting it, without leaving more holes for someone to like, go stealing? Well, because
0: what, what do I need to know? I need to know that that is you. I don't need to know that uh, that is definitely you as an individual. Just I'm answering the question, is this person the person I think it is? So if I can answer the question, is this person the person I think it is, then I can move forward. I don't need to know necessarily that it's you as an individual.
6: I think, okay, so so I would disagree with that because I would say you actually, it, it depends. And that's the biggest thing that I have a problem with. Like what I get really jazzed up about what I do is to me, identity is who you are, but that's context based. Right. So maybe if I trust you, I'm going to give. How much of me am I giving for how much am I getting?
0: Okay, so, so it's not static, it's, right? It's like an attribute thing. So, do I need to know that you're over 21 so you can buy alcohol? Yes, I do. Do I need to know your Correct. exact date of birth? Maybe not.
6: Maybe not. But today, what people don't understand is that they think, oh, biometrics, my whole privacy is gone. They forget to understand that their privacy is actually gone when you scroll down and you go accept terms and conditions without reading, or you use an OAuth and you bring your other credentials, maybe that service provider, your convenience, trumps security.
0: When you logged in with Facebook, you gave access to a whole bunch of stuff you didn't realize you were giving access to.
6: Totally. And most people don't read that, right? Most people don't understand. Actually, if you read the fine print, maybe that thing is telling you they can post for you or follow and unfollow people for you. And maybe you're going, actually, your value? is not worth my reputation. And my identity and my login is my reputation,
0: And I think what Dave Birch has been talking about for quite some time in this subject, I mean, good friend of the show, the idea of a reputation economy is so important in in the social sphere and in in this economy. What is more important than your reputation? And for somebody to have access to that cheaply is, is quite dangerous.
6: It's terrifying. And when you think about the fact that the major problem with credentials, yes, everyone can relate that, like, I don't want another username and another password which is why things like LastPass have have done really well in storing that. But I think the main problem that people are not talking about is, actually, I need to be able to decide how much do I give for how much am I getting. So trust and reputation matters if you can quantify or find a way, right? Airbnb rates people. So you, you have a shared economy way of rating that person's identity of how much they decided to share about their place. So how do you do that in a financial services system?
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. How do you do that in a financial services system?
6: I think you need to start by the fact that most companies, and which is why I'm such a big fan of the show, you look at banks, historically, they've purchased technology in silos. They've bought some SVP over here, bought a CRM solution or an IAM solution, and then someone else bought another one over here. And now they're trying to make sense of this. So when you look at under the hood, I often say this, when you look under the hood, the average bank will have seven to 14 credentials for you because you're... Simon that bought a mortgage, but maybe you're Simon that owns a business that then has a line of credit that actually lives in capital markets. So there's a person, a person, a person. So I think the way you start- None of these are connected.
0: They all exist in paper. The kind of holy grail of this whole thing has been, we want the single customer view. And the amount of financial services organizations that have tried to get that without a unique identifier to that individual. And yet the thing that always bothered me is I continue to be me throughout this whole experience. You All don't right. know who I am the entire time, yeah. but I'm still me. Yeah, I'm still. And me. I can probably prove that.
6: Yeah, you can probably prove that. And the fact that my Instagram has a better recommendation engine than my private banker, who's technically who I've trusted with my money. So I often say to people, it's like, the only way I think banks are ever going to get to that is understanding that they've historically been what? The discretionary money manager. So if identity could be that.
0: I think there's something about the idea that banks were built as these big buildings built out of marble and granite. They protected your stuff that was really valuable. In this day and age, what's more valuable than your digital identity? But then to do that, you don't build big buildings out of marble and granite, and you don't saw things in traditional ways, and you don't do it all with terms and conditions. You do it in a very new way.
6: In a very open way. So I think the thing that bugs me even more, other than their technologies being in silos and them not actually being able to do identity, is the fact that they a lot of banks will pride themselves in saying, "I'm advice-driven." So I often ask them, "If identity and data is currency, what's the advice you're giving your clients?"
0: Very yeah. fair question. So how do banks overcome this yeah. stuff? How do they get from being siloed, from not being able to do single customer view? What's the first step?
6: Ah, uh, I'm not a fintech insider and an expert, but. I would say that I've seen two ways. I'll tell you what I've seen in the market. I've seen banks try to say, okay, maybe if I figured out identity over here and every time I re-authenticate, I can start aggregating the data back to these silos that it lives in. So every time Bianca does use my service again, maybe I can pull that data and say, this Bianca over here is actually using this product. And then I've heard, and I'm a big believer of, just create a net new thing understand if you're either putting a power bar, and our solution often is is put identity and a centric from a technology stock perspective, and then open your APIs and build a bank and build services and understand you're not gonna be able to do it all on your own, which we've all seen in every area of banking.
0: Yeah, you can't do it all yourselves, but there's some great people out there that can help. If people wanna find more about BioConnect and yourself, where do they go?
6: Twitter, I think, yeah, just BioConnect and, and my name.
0: Fantastic, <laughs> Bianca, thank you very much for thank being on the so show. Thank you
6: so much, time. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much, Bianca. Okay, we've got to take a short ad break and we're back in just one moment.
8: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round.
3: Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: Thank you very much to our sponsors. Next up, I spoke to Aaron Pathian, the Marketplace Director at Temenos. Fantastic. I'm here with Aaron from Temenos. How are you, sir? Oh, super. Thank you for asking. Good, good. Are you having a good show at Money 2020? That's oh, massive.
8: Uh, Anyone who's been here, it's always just so crazy, but uh, yeah, very, very good.
0: Good. Glad to hear it. So uh, you're looking after, I believe, the uh, Temenos Open Marketplace, but tell me uh, a little bit about uh, Temenos first.
8: Yeah, sure. So Temenos, as you probably know, is the largest core banking software vendor in the world. Absolutely massive company, you know, 4,000 people. In software, that's a pretty big milestone, you, know, you get to a certain size, but you know, it's in a lot of banks, 700 banks. So yeah, it's a pretty big company.
0: And then this uh, open marketplace piece, tell us more about it. We have the ads running on uh, FinTech Insider, as you know, um, but give me a bit more than uh, just opening up access. Like what, is, what, is it, what does that mean for a FinTech and, yeah. and what does it mean for banks? I guess the nice thing is I'm a techie, so I've worked for terminals for 10 years. I uh, started
8: as a software engineer, of, uh, you know, we, one of the key designers of our integration platforms, our application frameworks, so I kind of know the tech really well. And uh, one of the main motivations about the marketplace is that I saw lots of vendors pitching products that fundamentally the banks never saw. So what I wanted to try and do first of all is have a platform where they could see and experience and touch the software and quickly evaluate. So you're not, not waste your time looking at something that's not going to be suitable. Just get past that. So
0: it. you can, as an engineer, get a feel for, will this product fly? Can the core system that the bank's using do this thing? Is that, is that kind of the core concept? Yeah,
8: I mean, it's, it's more than just the engineers, I suppose. You've got lots of sort of moving parts to get a product live. Um, you've got the kind of the developers need to you know, test it, and make sure it works, and integrate it. But then you've got the people who need to assess it, check that it's the right solution. So you need to do demos and show them the sort of functionality. And then you also you've got the vendor selection, you've got the kind of due diligence part of it. So there's all these sort of problems in that whole spectrum of I want a product, but I don't know what it is and, and getting it live. So yeah, I want to solve those problems like end-to-end.
0: Interesting. So can you give me an example of somebody who's worked with you on the fintech side before and, and what they might have done?
8: Yeah, I mean what's kind of interesting is the way we've structured the marketplace is We've attracted a very wide spectrum. So Thomson Reuters as an example, you wouldn't exactly think of them as a FinTech, but a massive company there in the marketplace with some data analytics type widgets, right down to kind of robo-advisors and kind of meet investors, a platform that drives, um, you know, investments for personal investors and, and always everyone in the middle. Lots of security products, you know, you've got uh, you know, biometrics, a face fees, you know, kind of facial recognition type product. So you've got these, this very wide spectrum of people who do automation, people who do apps and, you know, it's across the whole value chain, really. very, goes. very
0: cool. And so uh, when you look at that from a um, bank's perspective, what are, what are the benefits to them of, of this marketplace?
8: Yeah, I think primarily it's accelerating that process. One of the, one of the sort of favourite stories I have is that if you're a small company <laughs> trying want to sell to a bank, you could be two years and 20 meetings before you get live. That's if you survive that long. And for a bank, it's exactly the same problem. They don't want to wait two years to get a solution implemented. So they want to accelerate that whole process and they want to get through the-
0: So it's almost like a sandbox for people to see what could integrate into this core system and how might it look and how might it work to give people confidence that this is a a good idea, bad idea. And it it even maybe even allows people to disqualify things that they hadn't thought or that they did think was good, but turns out to be not that good.
8: absolutely. In fact, I think that's probably one of the most valuable parts, you know, iterate fast. And it's interesting you say the sandbox we hear about the regulatory sandboxes you know in the UK and Singapore and and, you know lots of other locations now starting off these sandboxes that's how we start working with the providers we give them a sandbox here's our system integrate with it and in the early days we thought that was you know purely for the providers to integrate As it turns out the banks want that too to see it and touch it and get hands on in a completely non-production way just to do the assessment and do it faster
0: what's been the the biggest challenge so far has it been getting people to just look at it has it been getting people on the platform has it been maybe getting from that next step after the platform Where, where do you see the challenge and where do you see growth of the platform coming
8: from yeah i mean i think the way you describe it all platform challenges Basically, every platform challenge is the challenge that we've had. And it's nice to have been there probably before platforms were cool. You know, we're only pretty young, but two years in the game already gives us a little jump on on establishing the platform. And uh, in the early days, we thought, well, you need to attract both sides. So we thought we could attract the banks, but we didn't know whether we could attract the fintechs. In our very first conference, there were 150 fintechs wanting to join the marketplace. We right, like, right, that's not a problem so much, but now actually speaking to the banks, starting to work with them, you're trying to solve that next problem. Because although we have the relationships, we don't necessarily have the relationships with the people who assess software. And so building up both those sides, now starting to make it work, It's uh, it's been a good challenge. It's going
0: deeper into the organization and helping them understand that, hey, you don't have to go through a multi-year product cycle to get something live that a customer might not want. You can test something for a lot less upfront cost and, and yeah not doing failure is a great business case. is yeah, uh, exactly. I think that makes complete sense. So, Aaron, right, where can people find out more about Temenos and the open marketplace?
8: So, it's quite simple. Marketplace.temenos.com. You can see all the products listed from 45 companies at the moment, adding about two a week at the moment. So, keep checking back. You know, temenos.com the source of what Temenos, who Temenos is and, and what we do. But definitely, you can go on there and get fulfillment. You can see these products. You can see demos. You can apply for trials. You know, you can you can
0: so you heard it go around to the website and um and uh, make money totally cool thank you thanks very much thank you thank you very much aaron that is indeed what makes the money go round. it seems uh next up we have eugene dankillis the ceo and co-founder at mambu the core banking provider very interesting one take it away Fantastic. So I'm here at Money 2020 with Eugene from Mambu. Eugene, how are you, sir?
9: Doing good, thanks. Yeah?
0: Having a good show so far?
9: Not too bad, yeah. Thanks good,
0: so good, good, good. So tell us, what is Mambu?
9: So Mambu is a SaaS cloud banking platform. We basically took the functionality you have in traditional core banking systems and tried to bring it into the modern age, providing it as a, in a software as a service model.
0: So that's, uh, that's, people use the term software as a service model, modern age. What does that actually mean? Are you sort of saying that you're not selling mainframes, you're not selling 30 year old technology, you guys built this thing from scratch, right?
9: That's right. In 2010, we opened up a new development project and let's say let's build a modern platform. What would it look like nowadays with the sort of cloud technology you have, with the APIs? What does a modern software and what does a service mean? And that means so why is it important
0: and why did you guys feel the need to do that? Because a lot of people say, but I've already got a mobile app. I've already got an iPad app. Like, I, I don't know if I need, I can do an Alexa app with my old core system. What, what's the difference that really starting again gave you?
9: It lets you create a new a modern architecture, which for us is basically a service-driven API-integrated architecture, which means the differentiator, for instance, is not necessarily in the mobile app, because who knows what the mobile experience is gonna look like in a couple of years, right? It's in about the products and the services and the way you can automate the whole entire business. And that means you need to have your whole entire business effectively ideally driven by API, such as you can plug and play different systems together. If there's a new channel to the customers, a new payment gateway, you can plug that in very easily. You don't have to rewrite the whole entire thing to launch a new product or change some pricing rules. You have things which you can do much quicker.
0: So what sort of timeline are you talking about to change pricing rules, to launch a new product versus what you would expect traditionally?
9: Within the Mambu platform, to define a new product is something you could do in literally minutes. But when you talk about end-to-end, it's something that you can you know, do in a week or two. I mean, because all you have to do is create a new product and change new pricing rules within Mambu. You might have new API endpoints. You might want to change a little bit of the business logic of how you do pricing. Any developer that's worked even on a Facebook app can do that. You don't need 10 consultants to run that for you. So you're changing the time of innovation and time to change of products down for multiple months and hundreds of thousands of dollars to days or weeks.
0: So when somebody says to you, uh, that's great, but I've got millions of customers on my existing system, uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of plumbing into all kinds of other different systems, what do you say to that? How do you, what do you, how do you sell them the, the benefits of moving away from that tried and trusted and true system that they know hasn't fallen over that often in the last 20 years?
9: Yeah, and I think that's great. And the system they have has been terrific for what it was built up for the, air, for the age it was built in. But I think what we suggest organizations that want to move to this space is we don't encourage them to go for a full-on sort of transformation project because those are very risky and they take a very long time. It can be very expensive to actually execute just from a cost perspective. What we encourage them to do is to look for markets which they are not particularly strong on or which they think are very lucrative or strategically important. This could be geographic markets or markets which, within their current geography, they're not serving very well, whether it's millennials or SME lending or whatever the market is. Find an area which they think is an area of growth or strategic importance for them down the road, and find a way to build something modern to address that market opportunity, and a way to kind of bring the technological and operational excellence of a service-based architecture and model cloud technology into the business, and still achieve a business case rather than a proof of concept.
0: So there's something that uh, I think is quite interesting. The idea that it's almost the dirty secret of banking that digital transformation doesn't work. Like it, it costs too much. It never delivers. So what you're proposing is an alternative. Right. And I guess that alternative could stand up on its own business case because it's I guess what your economics are different because you're cloud native and you're uh, you're really looking at. Um, the, it scales with the number of users. Like, what's the what's the difference f- with doing it the way you suggest from an economic perspective and and a risk perspective versus doing it the, the old fashioned way?
9: Well, I think with the old fashioned way, you're you know that before you even get off of the gates so you're already going to be at a back heel to any other either FinTech or bank that builds on the model architecture because they'll be moving in the market much months faster than you are. Every time you think of a new product or you want to change your value proposition or your customer experience you're going to be spending six, 12 months doing that. Everyone else can be able to do that, doing it much faster. So taking that sort of approach already basically means you're not actually looking to the future, you're not looking at who you're going to be your relevant competitors in the next couple of years. You're looking at who were the competitors in the past. So right away, you're kind of already on the on the back heel, basically.
0: Yeah, if you're looking towards the past, you'll achieve the results from the past. If you're yes. looking into the future, you can you can do new things with, with flexible architectures. So can you give me some examples of where you guys have, have done this before and where it succeeded?
9: Yeah, sure. Um, I wish I could name a few names, but uh, hopefully we'll do that by the end of the year. But for instance, we're working with a very large telco, for instance, right now that's had a very large customer base almost 50 million subscribers and they wanted to launch financial products for there started a new banking subsidiary effectively and looking at lending and deposit products we have another tier one bank here in europe that again saw an opportunity in sme lending in europe which they were not really addressing very well and they built an online first mostly automated lending business focused entirely on sme running as a completely separate subsidiary, team is completely independent from the rest of the bank, operations are independent, and the technology they use is obviously independent as well, using us as a platform. And there's another dozen or so prospects and projects that we have in the pipeline, which are all sort of similar, but large institutions that see market opportunity niches which they want to address, and they want to build up not just a new technology stack, but a new operating model, to support it so it's the two things that have to go hand in hand if you put a new technology stack with an old operating model that also doesn't work as well
0: and when you talk about new operating model is that new ways of thinking as well as new ways of working and what might those be is there a cultural bit here
9: it's partially cultural it's about you know being able to being an an a relatively agile organization as much as a financial solution can be uh, about how you're thinking about your products, your customers. It's about the processes. Also, what things are you automating? What is manual? Some things should be manual, but what should that be? So, you're redesigning some of the processes and the workflows, and you're looking for technology where it can help you do that, do the low value stuff quicker and cheaper. And where you then focus your people resources on the things that really differentiates the market the customer experience, the pricing, the credit scoring, the branding, other elements, and you're trying to create an organization and process that supports those things and doesn't put tons of resources on the stuff that doesn't add any value, like mainframes yeah. and so forth. Yeah.
0: Banks, and I guess a lot of uh, consumer facing big companies talk about this idea of fulfillment. These, these sort of almost, uh, industrial machine like um, factory line processes in which they serve a customer the customer comes into a physical location and then they are given this and then they take some paper from this physical location and we've taken those and we've we've changed them are you saying that actually there's a chance to reimagine that now is is, and are you seeing people do that
9: i think they are yeah um the benefit and the disadvantage of MUMB was the fact that they can do so much with the platform and the APIs. And in some sense, there's some things we don't get to see in the project as well because they're innovating so much on top of it without ever really having to get us particularly involved in it. But what they're usually starting off is they're looking, starting off, what is the customer, what does the customer journey look like, what should it look like from the customer, and then finding different services, whether it's people or technology, to support them. So if the customer journey is the fact that he's a small business that needs a revolving credit loan to support his objectives for the next 12 months and the loan is going to be between this and this amount, then how will he want to acquire that loan? What should his experience look like? Where do we as a bank need data from him? And what's the easiest way for him to provide that data for us? And you kind of define the journey from the customer's perspective and you look again for people and technology to support the journey as much as you can, rather than starting with these are my departments and he's got to go through these funnels to get to the end of the maze. It's
0: just a different approach. Uh, Eugene, where can people find out more about Mambu?
9: Just uh, visit us on our website, mambu.com.
0: Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider.
9: Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you.
0: A great interview, I'm sure you'll agree. Coming up, the penultimate interview with Don Giselle from Holland Fintech.
10: Fantastic, so now I have the opportunity to sit down with Don Giselle. I'm probably completely killing your second name there, so
7: uh, but that's right, that's, a, that's a quite a tough one. For, yeah, uh, well,
10: it was, everything is tough for me, I'll be honest with you. But, uh, and uh, you're the leader of Holland Fintech. So obviously, you, uh, you know, Fintech in Holland is pretty hot, right? We've got some pretty impressive companies coming out of, based in Amsterdam and broader into uh, helping banks in The Hague and various different places. So, you know, Amsterdam's been hot. But um, what, what have you seen at the event so far in Money 2020 that uh, you've really liked?
7: So, what I really like is actually that I see so many of those uh, promising startups of uh, a couple of years back. You see them actually progressing and actually being now becoming more of the more serious sponsors around this event. Yeah. So, I think the progress there, I'm not sure if it's just also for show, but if they're actually making progress, it looks like it. Especially, I think the neo banks are doing quite a good job. And uh, the interesting thing I think is that basically, what I really find very funny is that I think one year ago, I think we had a better idea on what PSD2 was actually going to bring us than we do now, <laughs> as we're getting closer to the implementation, but actually much more fork around around, just around topic and the, the RTS. Uh, so I think that's, and it's a lot of fun to actually figure that out and see how people are struggling with that. Uh, well, at the same time, it's of course also a big opportunity for uh, a lot of organisations.
10: Yeah. yeah, I love the speculation around PSD two. Everybody gets very excited and then very nervous, and then there's this sort of uh, sort of collection of fear kind of coming, isn't there? I think particularly from the banks, but uh, there's lots of people here who are seeing it as a massive opportunity, though. So, uh, but I think
7: it is. But you need to get it. You need to get it out of the compliance department. Otherwise, uh, it will keep just being approached from fear perspective. Indeed. Uh,
10: so the, the, I guess the, the big news, you know, obviously other than all the company announcements that have been happening here at Money 2020 is uh, obviously next year it's going to be over in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, which, exactly. um, You yeah. know, I, I say to everybody is like literally if I could convince my wife to move anywhere, it would be to Amsterdam. Like uh, A, Schiphol Airport, but just beautiful place to be. So ha- how did it come around that Money 2020 is going to Amsterdam then?
7: So I, th- I think if you actually look into, uh, so you see that basically it's becoming too big for the venue that it currently has. Yep. Uh, you see that sort of uh, infrastructurally uh, Copenhagen is struggling with this uh, size of, uh, of event. Yeah. Uh, and so basically if you scavenge around Europe then I think you just find a couple of places where you could actually fit in a 10,000 people kind of event. Uh, and if you then actually also look into some of the nicer places I think you only come up with a top three or so where you need to go. And I think there so we've, we've, we've been working with Money2020 Europe for over two years now. Mm-hmm. So we already were in a close relationship. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of roadshow events in advance of the European show that they do. And so we, we feel that we're a, kindred spirits in that sense so that i think really helped to see that they they are fully aware of the fact that they could get on the ground support from us and we saw that uh, the, the venue Rai really worked with them uh, the city of amsterdam was putting up support uh, not financially but willing open to basically you know move everything that they can uh to, to facilitate such an event yeah and i think also some of the dutch financial services stakeholders Like, for example, Rabobank or UL or Five Degrees are the ones that said, you know, will be supporting you as well when you come over. And I think basically having some sites into sponsorships for next year and thereafter is probably going to has helped a lot as well. Fantastic.
10: Well, uh, you know, Amsterdam, like I say, is always one of my favorites.
7: So, uh, money 2020, 2018, see you in Amsterdam. It will be great, I think. So, uh, I think that... uh, the nightlife of Amsterdam is going to be also quite refreshing, uh, addition to Monday uh, 2020.
10: Yeah, I, like, there's always that day two lag for people, but I imagine day two in Amsterdam is going to be a little bit harder than, uh, than just it would be in Copenhagen. <laughs> Definitely.
7: So. We need much more coffee, I would believe, and uh, <laughs> probably a bit, li- a bit less attendance in the very early sessions.
10: Indeed. All right, uh, well, thanks for joining us, Don, and uh, look forward to seeing you in Amsterdam.
7: Look forward to seeing you there.
10: Thank you.
0: And our last interview today is with Lav Odorovic, the co-founder and CEO at SME Bank Penta.
11: So I am Megan and I'm here with Lav from Penta. So can you tell us a bit more about Penta and what you guys do?
12: Yeah. Hi, Megan. Uh, Very nice to speak to you. Uh, So at Penta, we're creating a digital business bank. So we are uh, aiming to provide really the product that high-tech users have been waiting for so long. Guys like us. So it's a digital business bank. And what we do, uh, let's say differently than everyone else, is we do not want to reinvent the wheel. So all the great solutions that are already there, we integrate and many of those are FinTech champions that our customers are already using. So uh, we're now finally giving them the chance to actually have everything integrated in one place and uh, you know, really remove the friction and go forward.
11: Nice, and you guys are based in Berlin, so will it just be available in Germany or?
12: Yeah, so we're starting in Berlin and from the day one, uh, you know, uh, even uh, people or companies outside of Germany could use it across Europe. However, we will focus on Germany per se in the first, let's say, 6 to 12 months. But afterwards, we have plans to go outside of the borders and actually serve High-tech companies across the continent.
11: Cool. Yeah, I've heard it's an absolute nightmare to be like a freelancer, an SME in Berlin, just with all the tax and everything. And it just seems like they're
12: really yeah, underserved. Exactly. So. Exactly. It's not really the the best thing to uh, to be or do. Even opening a bank account is is a, is a nightmare. We uh, just to give you a small example. We were part of Startup Bootcamp uh, last year in London, and we wanted to open a bank account for Penta. We had so much trouble. We've tried with uh, eight banks, and it took us 12 weeks, and we failed in the end. So for us, it was easier to actually build a bank than open a bank account. So uh, this is, uh, many people are actually going through these problems, and uh, we're gonna do something about this.
11: Cool, great. And at Money 2020, you guys were part of the startup pitch, right? Yes. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
12: Yeah, so 15 startups pitched. Uh, they were chosen among many, as uh, as we hear, um, and they were really cool. Yes. There are some really good ideas. I'm also very uh, happy to say that four out of 15 were Startup Bootcamp uh, guys, and uh, now we've just got results. So uh, Penta got into the top three, and tomorrow are the finals. And also another startup from Startup Bootcamp is in top three, so Fantastic. we're doing really well as a team.
11: Fantastic, so when is the final pitch?
12: So it is tomorrow at 2.40. There will be a live stream at a keynote, so there's going to be five, six thousand people, uh, hopefully uh, watching. Yeah, this.
11: and how are you feeling about it?
12: Oh, yeah, I'm good. feeling uh, really good. It's 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 really nice.
11: Cool. And how's your experience been? At, is this your first money in 2020?
12: Yes, this yeah. is our first. As much as I know, there was only one uh, more previously in Europe, right? Last year, by the time Penta was so young, and we had some other things to uh, to worry about. So uh, really great to be here. So many great, nice people. Yeah sessions and uh, including you Megan
11: oh thank you what's your what's the most exciting thing you've seen or one of the coolest things you've seen around here
12: um so let me see there there was a really good session on uh, banking as a service uh from solaris bank who are our partners as well and also uh uh, guys from rails bank some other guys speaking as well but they were really interesting and uh yeah i don't know this is probably the best thing i've uh, heard so far but so many different levels yeah
11: of course Cool. Thank you so much for speaking Thank with me. Thank you, Megan.
12: Cool. And very. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much, Lav. That's it for our Money 2020 Insights special in Copenhagen. But of course, uh, if you want more from Fintech Insiders, you can go to fintechinsider.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends, subscribe, and stay tuned for more. Thank you very much. Until next time.